strange. This is a, a seems to be a, a general rule for humans and other species that energy expenditures really maintain in a narrow range. That's different than what you're typically told, which is that your act, your your activity level dictates your energy expenditure. Instead, what our data are showing is that when you're less active, your body still spends those calories, mm. but what's it spending it on, right? Mm. And I think that's where you kind of get into trouble because we know that inflammation levels are higher in the West. We know that you know reproductive hormone levels are higher. We know that stress reactivity might be higher. Um, certainly, cortisol levels are higher. Uh, and so, you know, the the current theory here is that all of that, you know, your body is, it's almost like a, you know, when you go traveling and you've got a suitcase, suitcase is always full. You know what I mean? You yeah. never go, even if it's a long trip or a short trip, the suitcase is always full. Well, your metabolism is kind of like that. You're going to fill it. You're going to fill your calories per day with something. And when you fill it with stuff that you don't really need to do, like inflammation, um, that might be one of the reasons we get so sick uh, here in the West. And, and conversely, Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you heard in the beginning is the guest for this episode, Dr. Herman Ponser, the author of the book, Burn. Now, before I get into the full introduction for Dr. Ponser, I want to take a moment to say thank you. And I mean this very sincerely. Thank you so much. There's been a great response for the podcast. I can see the numbers coming up. I've gotten some great feedback from listeners, and I really... I'm. I got some great plans. I mentioned this before, and, and, and sorry if I'm saying it again. I got some great plans for 2021, and I am I'm so thrilled that you're with me and along for the ride. Because, especially with guests like like Dr. Ponser today, I am trying to bring you information that you can use to enhance your quality of life. And that's why the, the, when I saw the when I saw this book when when his his publicist sent it to me, and I've shared that with you, right? Some of the interviews, some of the interviews on the All About Fitness podcast are people whose, whose work I've studied, research I've read, books I've read. I want to invite them to come, on, to come on the show and share their information. Other people that come on the show, I find out through publicists or PR people. And let me just say that there are a lot of people who I don't want to bring on the show because they don't have the qualifications. Well, the guest for this episode, Dr. Herman Ponser, is extremely qualified. And it's the first time that I've ever spoken with, he calls himself an evolutionary anthropologist. Right, and you're like, wait, wait, Pete. This is a podcast about fitness and exercise. Why are we going to listen to an anthropologist? Well, Dr. Ponser's work is fascinating. If you pick up a copy of his book, Burn, you'll you'll be drawn in in the first chapter, because what with, with and you hear us talk about this. One of the biggest nutrition trends out there, and I've had one or two of these guests on, so I, I'm not opposed to any trends, but per se, if it gets people thinking differently about how they eat. But one of the biggest nutrition trends out there is paleo, right? The paleo diet. Well, we should eat like our ancestors ate. You know, human evolution, you know, for years, thousands of years, we lived on the planet. Well, Dr. Ponser, Dr. Ponser went to the savannah in Africa. He lived with the Hadza tribe. He did his studies on the energy expenditure of the Hadza tribe. And that's what his book, Burn, isn't based 100% on, but his book starts out on looking at this nomadic tribe of people in North, I think it was Tanzania, and how they expend energy. Because think about it. When was the last time you went out, and there are people, I've had hunters on the show before, I had um, Dan Staten from Elk Shape, you may go out and you may hunt food. You may go out, you may take down one or two elk, you may take down a deer, and you may use that and harvest that meat. Good. But you're not doing that every day. Your spouse, your significant other, you may not, you may not be going out into the savannah to go hunt. Your significant other may not be digging for berries with, with a baby tied on their back. We have a much different way of getting energy now. One of the reasons why we have such an obesity issue in our country or in the first world even now we have an obesity issue in the developing world, that's a conversation for another day, is because the energy cost to get energy is very minimal. If all you have to do now to get food, once upon a time, 200, 300 years ago, the tribes in North Africa today, in order to get enough food to eat, you had to go out and spend two, 3,000 calories just to go bring in two, 3,000 calories. How much energy do you expend to order, to order Uber Eats? How much energy does it cost to, to call Domino's? I'm sorry, you don't call a place anymore. How much energy does it cost to order Domino's on an app? Zero. So we spend almost no energy to bring in thousands of calories. 
And that's what Dr. Ponser's work, he's a cultural, I said, he's not a cultural anthropologist. He calls himself like an, an evolutionary anthropologist or, or a metabolic anthropologist. His book is a great, if you, want to, if you want to understand the science of metabolism, if you want to understand the science of how your body burns calories, I highly recommend this. It's a great read, easy to read. The science, of course, I'm a science geek. That's one of the reasons why you listen to the show. The science, for me, it's always good to have a refresher. The science was easy to understand. And really, he talks about the whole understanding of calories in, calories out, and how our bodies have evolved to be extremely efficient. And now, Dr. Ponser studies metabolism, and metabolism is how our body expends energy. And if you want to become more efficient at burning energy, if you want to become better at exercise, I have a couple of resources for you. Number one, my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. Smarter Workouts, I teach you how to do metabolic conditioning. I teach you the science of metabolic conditioning. I teach you the science of core strength. I teach you the science of mobility, and you learn workouts for each of those. Smarter Workouts includes 21 workouts. If you go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com, if you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com and sign up for my mailing list, I'll send you a chapter from Smarter Workouts along with one or two workouts that you can try before you buy it. That's one resource. Another resource I have is total body is not total body core training. That's a course I did. If you're a fitness professional, my total body core training course is approved for CECs by ACE, AF, and NASM. The course will teach you how to design exercise programs to be energy expensive, right? Exercise is energy expensive. We're trying to get rid of as much energy as possible. Yet, meanwhile, our metabolism is trying to conserve energy. It needs to, it needs to save energy. And that's one of the things we talk about today with Dr. Ponser. Now, another resource is my book, Functional Core Training, my ebook, Functional Core Training. These resources are down below in the show notes. If you want to learn more about exercise, if you want to learn more about the science of exercise and how it can change your life, how it can enhance your life, and yes, how it can slow down the aging process, check down below in the show notes. I have resources for you. But we're really what, what this is a fascinating discussion today. It really is. I this is a great episode. This is a lot of fun. And, and the thing is, if you go to if you go to YouTube, the All About Fitness podcast channel on YouTube, you can see the discussion we have because it is so much fun. I love one of the things I love about talking to my guests is when you ask them a question about an area they're obviously interested in, you see their face light up. They get very animated. And that's one of the reasons why I'm starting to put these interviews on my YouTube platform, the All About Fitness Podcast YouTube channel, is because I want you to see, not only do I want you to hear and learn from the guests, but I want you to see how they react when 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 they're, they're talking about one of their favorite subjects. And, and you can hear Dr. Ponser's voice lights up today when he, when he gets to discussing about, about metabolism, about understanding the evolution. So without any further ado, this is Dr. Herman Ponser, a He's a professor and researcher at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and we're here today to talk about the human metabolism and his book, Burn. Today on the All About Fitness podcast, it's a lot of fun to catch up with Dr. Herman Ponser, the author of a book called Burn. How are you doing today, Dr. Ponser? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Certainly. I want to say thank you for taking the time to join me and, and to join the listeners. And really, I was, I was fascinated by your book and, and because it really deep, goes deep into the metabolism. And what I like about it, what I really liked about it was the way you started off. You kind of have a very different approach towards understanding metabolism. Can you tell us a little bit about who the Hadza are and, and what, you, what you're studying with them and why? Sure, sure. Well, so it all starts because, you know, I'm trained as an anthropologist. You know, a lot of people on your show, I would imagine, have, you know, dietitian training or uh, exercise training, which is great too. Uh, but, you know, I, I've learned a lot of sports physiology and nutrition physiology uh, in my career, but I'm trained initially as an anthropologist. I want to know about human evolution. I want to know about how evolution shapes our body and, and how that deep history kind of shapes the way you know, our bodies react to this weird modern world that we've built for ourselves. Uh, and so, uh, you know, to understand that deep physiology, that old evolutionary history, we need reference points that are, that are ecologically like our ancestors. Now that, you know, no, no population today is a perfect model of, of the past. We're all equally modern humans living, you know, today, but there are a handful of populations that are still hunting and gathering. And so, and, and humans have been hunting and gathering for millions of years since even before we were, were Homo sapiens, right? So the, our genus is a hunting and gathering genus, two million years. 
And so that's the lifestyle. That's the ecology that, that really shaped our bodies. And so, you know, as an anthropologist, somebody who's interested in that, that deep history, um, uh, you, you want to try to find a population like that that you can work with and understand what life is like for them and how that affects their bodies. And so well, the Hadza I, are one of well, these well, populations. Sorry, yeah. if I can cut in here one second before you go into who the Hadza sure. are, because what I th- found fascinating on that is one of the biggest trends right now we know is paleo, right? I mean, right. there's paleo right. everything and, you know, paleo this, paleo that. And what I loved about it was you forget forget whatever some mythical research somebody wrote on a blog <laughs> Yeah. You were living, so so sorry. I just I just wanted to point out that paleo is one of the biggest trends right now, and here you are in the field studying it at ground level. Yeah, well, and that's exactly right. And you know, and, and the idea behind paleo is is right in line with what I'm saying. You know, if you understand your past, you understand what shaped your body. You know, that's that's a great start to understanding how to keep yourself healthy today. So I had you know, the 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 paleo mindset in a way, the theory, the philosophy, I, I totally get. But as you say. So much of it is, you know, storytelling about what we think it was like. Um, and, but you can, you don't have to tell stories. You can go and, and, and actually, there's still some populations that are still doing this stuff. Um, and like I said, you know, they're not, they're not frozen in time. They're not a perfect model, but they're a pretty good idea. They're a good window into what that kind of lifestyle is like. So the, the Hadza are one of these kind of populations. They live in northern Tanzania in this African savanna. They hunt and gather their foods, no crops, no vehicles, no guns, no machines, no electricity. They're, you know, it's wild game, wild plants, lots of wild honey. Um, and that's how they live their life. So, so my work into, you know, metabolism sort of broadly, uh, a lot of it started with that, that effort to understand their physiology, how they burn calories in that kind of lifestyle. And so I'm fascinated by that. So were you an anthropologist and you, you saw this, you're like, okay, well, how do they burn calories because when I was reading it, 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 when I was reading it, I was kind of reading it from the view, obviously it's my bias of a physiologist of going saying this is really cool that he kind of teamed up with an anthropologist. But what you got you interested in that field of study, doctor? I mean, what what kind of made you not just study the anthropology, but kind of like the metabolic anthropology? Sure. So, well, I mean, you know, so I'm trained, I say anthropology, but anthropology is really broad, right? So my flavor of anthropology is very much physiology, biology. I want to understand how our bodies worked, how it, you know, the, the biology of it evolved. So that's my mindset, uh, has always been my mindset, my interest. Um, but, you know, if you understand how a, any organism spends its calories, you understand a whole lot about how it evolved and what its life life strategy is all about, right? Because all evolution cares about is how you turn energy into kids, right? That's that's the nub of it. That's all of life from an evolutionary point of view. And so, you know, you counting the calories, following the calories, that's really, if you don't have that, if you don't have that metabolic understanding of a species, including our own, you don't really have a great start on understanding the species as a whole. So, you know, for me, it was really natural to ask questions about calorie expenditure. And what was it? I mean, what what did you learn from studying the Hadza and their energy expenditure? Not only not only their energy expenditure and their diet. I mean, and the, the other the other thing that that kind of popped in my mind was when you're out in the field, how much weight did you lose? I mean, was that <laughs> was that kind of like was that kind of like your spa trip? Or like, okay, I'm going to go spend some time in the field and yeah. plan on cutting a few kilos yourself. But but in all seriousness, what what yeah. did you really by observing that this population? What were some of your, what were one or two of your big takeaways? Well, you know, I mean, first let's start with the obvious stuff. They're incredibly physically active. You know, if you're, if you're going to count steps, the men are getting about 19,000 steps a day. Women are getting about 13,000 steps a day. They're walking a lot. Uh, you know, women are digging up tubers with, uh, you know, with sticks out of the you know, wild tuber root vegetables um, with a kid on their back all day, you know, so it's a lot of physical activity um, about, we've done the accelerometry measurements on this. It's about five times more physical activity than the typical American gets. Uh, the diet is a very kind of whole foods diet, obviously nothing processed, right? But it's a mix. So, you know, one of the the paleo myths, I think, is that, is that hunter gatherer diets are meat heavy. And we don't see that with the Hadza. It's it's a mix. They, they, they have a mix of about 50, 50 calories from meat, calories from plants and honey. So, right off the bat, there's your kind of, that's the baseline. But what we didn't know going into it, the reason that we, that I, you know, went out and, and worked to get the grant money to go and put the time in to go is because we hadn't, nobody had ever measured daily energy expenditures with these guys. And so there's a, this really good technique you can use, really uh, precise technique you can use called doubly labeled water, which actually uses isotopes to track how your body produces carbon dioxide. Hmm. And that allows you to, to know, because you can't make CO2 without burning calories. You can't burning calories without making CO2. It's this really precise measure of calorie expenditure. 
And we went out and actually measured the calorie expenditure of adults, of men and women in the Hadza and in the Hadza community. And it was, it was a shocker because, you know, we went into this knowing, just knowing in our hearts that they were going to burn lots and lots more calories than we do every day. But the punchline is that even though they're much more physically active than you and me, well, maybe not you, but the typical American, uh, calorie expenditure is completely the same, indistinguishable from sedentary folks in the industrialized world. So that was a huge, you know, realization and also has been, you know, a sort of wake up call to try to re to understand how metabolism works, because apparently, you know, the old story doesn't really hold. So, and I would just kind of sum that up, but my metabolism, so basically, and I got this from your reading. So my metabolism here in North County, San Diego is relatively, is going to burn calories relatively about the same per kilogram of body mass, right? Per, per like lean muscle mass. I might be a different body weight than, than somebody in North Tanzania of the Hadza tribe, but we're basically going to burn calories the same way. And we're going to burn about the same amount of calories doing the same activities. Is that kind of what, what your research demonstrated? Yeah. So, you know, bigger people burn more calories than small people just because there's more of you, right? There's more cells ticking away. Um, so you have to correct for body size and all of these kind of comparisons. But that's right. When you, when, you know, in a, in a kind of pound for pound comparison, they have the same, they're burning the same number of calories every day as you and me. So in other words, if I pluck out at random somebody who's the same exact body size, body composition, all that stuff from America and somebody from the Hadza population and I measure their energy expenditures, on average, I'm going to get the exact same number for those two people, even though the lifestyles are totally different. So what that tells us is they're spending calories differently, right? The ways their body's spending calories is, must be really different because um, there's a difference in lifestyle, but no difference in calorie expenditure. Well, I'm, I'm kind of giggling right now because you say that. And for listeners, I'm holding up my phone. He, you know, Dr. Ponzer can see, can see my phone on the thing. And here's the primary difference, right? The Hadza tribe, if they're going to have something to eat, you said they burn, they're taking 19,000 steps. They're burning X, X thousand of calories a day in pursuit of their next meal because they're a hunter-gatherer type. Meanwhile, what do I need to do to get food? I swipe. I do a couple swipes. I press a button and I pay yeah. Grubhub to come drop it off of my door. I mean, that I really, you know, that's the one thing that, that I was thinking about reading through your work was that we have one of the big issues we have right now is the fact our energy cost here in America and in the first world, our energy cost of getting calories is completely off with the energy costs when you, of, the, of the population you studied. I mean, is that, is that the main primary difference of what you observed? Yeah, that's right. That's right. They're spending all this energy to get food. We spend zero, you know. Um, and I think, you know, the way that that's been interpreted, you know, in the absence of any data, because people hadn't measured energy expenditures with the Hadza before. And let me just say, it's not just the Hadza. We've gone and looked at other populations since then. We've looked across species. We've looked at, and this isn't, isn't just their, them being strange. This is a, a it seems to be a, a general rule for humans and other species that energy expenditures really maintain in a narrow range. That's different than what you're typically told, which is that your, act, your, your activity level dictates your energy expenditure. Instead, what our data are showing is that when you're less active, your body still spends those calories, mm. but what's it spending it on, right? Mm. And I think that's where you kind of get into trouble because we know that inflammation levels are higher in the West. We know that you know, reproductive hormone levels are higher. We know that stress reactivity might be higher. Um, certainly cortisol levels are higher. Uh, and so, you know, the, the current theory here is that all of that, you know, your body is, it's almost like a, you know, when you go traveling and you've got a suitcase, suitcase is always full. You know what I mean? You yeah. never go, even if it's a long trip or a short trip, the suitcase is always full. Well, your metabolism is kind of like that. You're going to fill it. You're going to fill your calories per day with something. And when you fill it with stuff that you don't really need to do, like inflammation, um, that might be one of the reasons we get so sick uh, here in the West. And, and conversely, why, if you, if you instead you spend that, if you fill that uh, backpack with, with activity and less inflammation, then, hey, now, now you got a protective benefit for exercise. And that's, see, I mean, that's where I want people kind of to learn a little bit about this, about your work. And, and the one thing, let's, let's take a step back now. And we, we kind of jumped right in to talking yeah. about your, your anthropology, anthropology work. But let's explain, or if you, not let's, but if you could explain a little bit about what our metabolism, metabolism is. Because a lot of people who exercise have heard the term metabolic conditioning or metabolic this, yeah. metabolic that. Um, but if you could go into a little bit about what our metabolism, uh, metabolism is and 
the role that it plays in keeping us alive, I mean, that, oh, sure. I think that'd be a little bit helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, you've got about 37 trillion cells, give or take. And every <laughs> one of them, right? Every one of those cells is busy right now at work. And very little of it has to do with moving you around or anything like that. Most of it is just taking nutrients in, you know, chopping them up, putting them back together, making different products your, your cells need, getting rid of waste products, all that just daily housekeeping stuff, right? And all of that is work and work takes energy. And when, that, when we measure all that energy together, we call it your metabolism, right? And you say it that way, and it's kind of obvious that, wow, you know, movement exercise is only one category of the kind of work that cells do, right? Uh, your brain is burning calories all the time, your kidneys, your liver, all of it's just constantly ticking away, your immune system, your all of it's burning calories. And so, you know, we have been shaped, and this is again, where my sort of an evolutionary perspective, I think is useful. We've been shaped over 500 million years of vertebrate evolution, right? Things with backbones, fish and the rest of us, uh, to, to, you know, shaped by evolution to get really good at turning resources from our environment and offspring. That's all it cares about. So the tasks that are involved in that, which are all, they all burn energy growing up, reproducing, maintenance, staying alive, all that stuff. Your body's keeping track of all that, that calorie throughput, whether you know it or not, right? And it's, and it's, it is allocating energy to all those different tasks to maximize, you know, reproductive output basically. Um, and so that's what your body, that, that's metabolism. If you ask a physiologist, you know, an evolutionary physiologist, that's metabolism. It's not just exercise. It's not just diet, right? Wait, wait, wait. I, I thought from watching uh, the History Channel, I thought the aliens dropped us off here a number of years ago. What? <laughs> I used to, <laughs> I, no, yeah. I'm just, I'm completely no. I mean, I just. No, I know, I know. But you just, uh, it, well, that's not too far off from some of the stuff you hear, uh, it, even in, in less crazy circles. So that's all but, right. <laughs> but when you look at it, though, I mean, to take a look at this, though, at the intelligent design of how our bodies are structured, because, yes, our body, every cell produces energy, every cell uses energy. But also, too, and this is one of the things that was coming to mind reading through your work, was we also use mechanical energy. I mean, we get mechanical energy. Like I've had experts on here talking about fascia and tissue resiliency. So there's a combination between chemical energy and mechanical energy that if somebody were to create a cyber cyborg for the purpose of whatever, that the human the human being is actually a pretty – would you say that the human being is actually a really good, quote-unquote, cyborg for however we were created? If, if our yeah. goal is to, to sustain, be self-sustaining. That's interesting. An interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, the, the, again, we're products of, you know, products of evolution and every generation has been successful at reproducing. So on some level, of course, we must be resilient to have survived over the eons, you know? Um, now, on the other hand, uh, if you look at, uh, one, one of my things I've trained in is, is comparative anatomy, you know, the anatomy of chimpanzees and gorillas and all, all of our, our closest relatives. And if you look at, you know, if you look at the ligaments on a, in a chimpanzee knee, there's the same ligaments as in your knee and mine, right? Uh, so even though we have all this extra stress on our hind legs, because we're on two legs versus four, like an ape would be, uh, most apes would be, uh, we haven't, we don't have any extra pieces or parts to kind of keep our knees more stable. And so we're more likely to get injured that way, right? So, um, so in some ways we're incredibly efficient. Human walking is really efficient. We're really, we, you know, our gas mileage when we walk is, is impressive. Well, I want to ask you a question on that in a second, but the one thing I teach, when, when I teach like, do lectures and workshops on biomechanics, one of the things I point out, doctor, is that almost every four-legged animal, four-legged mammal that comes out can walk almost immediately because they, they have four points of contact with, gra with the ground and they're yeah. loaded, their, their spine is horizontal to gravity. Whereas humans, yeah. our first year of, of living is basically a strength and conditioning program to be able to walk <laughs> on two feet. I mean, that's just been, that's like my little, I kind of get people thinking yeah. about like everything we need to know about movement I learned I learned so much by move, of movement by watching my two kids go from right. ro you know rolling, crawling, sitting up. So I think it's what did you learn, and that's this kind of a slight segue. But what did you learn uh, from studying primates? Because you have a chapter in your book about that, about oh, sure. some of your observations. What did you learn by studying? I'm just pulling up the chapter here that uh, you call it. Um, the, how humans, because I like this, how humans evolved to be the nicest, fittest, and fattest apes. <laughs> I think it's a great chapter title. Yeah, well, you know, that was one of the fun things about this book, by the way, I'll just say is um, the sort of the invitation 
to just to take the stuff I love and the science I, I've had the really great fortune to do and write about it. Um, you know, I hope I hope the fun and the adventure comes through in the writing. It's really it's been fun work to do. So it's, it's been it was an easy out. read. I mean, it was a very yeah. easy read. That's great to hear. Well, so, you know, that's right. So if you look at other primates, so monkeys and apes and lemurs, um, this is another discovery my lab made. And I should just I want to also make sure these are all big collaborative efforts, right? You don't go by yourself, the lone, you know, the lone dude doing these projects. These are all big collaborative efforts. So shout out to my collaborators. Um, but, you know, one of the things we discovered early on in, in trying to take this really metabolic metabolism first approach to anthropology is if you look at all the primates, um, including us, we all burn energy more slowly than other mammals. So dogs, herbivore, you know, ungulates, uh, rodents, bats, they all burn energy faster than, than us. And, and we think part of that change, that big metabolic change, we're talking like a 50% reduction in energy expenditure. Wow. Yeah, is, um, is part of the reason that we grow so slowly, right? And it's not just humans. So humans grow slowly compared to other animals. Think about your dogs and cats, right? Dogs and cats are adults by the time they're one years old. They're, you know, even if you mm -hmm. have a great life, they're probably gone by the time they're in their teens, right? You know, it's a, it's a quick life if you're a dog or a cat. And that's typical for most mammals. They grow up fast and, they, and sadly they die fast. Um, you know, humans, we grow slowly, age slowly, reproduce slowly, die, die old. If you're lucky, you hope so. Um, and so all primates are like that. We have these really slow lives. And so our metabolism is actually, we can thank our metabolism for that, these slow primate metabolisms. But then if you look within, within the apes, which within our immediate family, humans have uh, faster metabolic rates than the other apes do. We've sort of somehow, you know, we're still not as fast as other mammals, as, as not non-primate mammals, but we're faster than the other apes. And that, that sort of acceleration in our metabolic rate well, you know, we have to fuel it, first of all. So it means that somehow we're able to, to successfully and reliably get more food. And part of the thing I talk about there is the hunting and gathering, which I said, is, that's, the, that's the fundamental human strategy, is this great way to make sure you never run out of food because you hunt, I gather, right? And, and at the end of the day, we share. Uh, all humans share food and no other primates really do. Um, and that allows us to just sort of have this, this, this sort of fail safe. We, we don't ever have to worry too much about running out of food. Um, We've also gotten fatter than other apes do, other apes are, uh, you know, so we think that might also be kind of a reserve tank for this fast metabolism. But that faster metabolism, what does it do for you? Well, it lets you have a big brain because brains are really metabolically expensive. So you have to have a fast engine to be able to support that. We have big babies more often. Um, you know, most, most apes, they don't have their next kid until the first one's weaned and halfway grown up. Oh, wow. Right. But ours are, as we know, you can have big... Um, I come from a big Roman Catholic part of uh, family in a big Roman Catholic part of Pennsylvania. So I can tell you, you can have lots and lots of kids. <laughs> That's what you want to do. Um, and it's, it's harder for an ape to do that. It would be hard because of the metabolic constraints. So, um, yeah. So, you know, again, from that evolutionary perspective, that's what's so fascinating to me is all of the changes that have happened over eons and that have kind of shaped who we are. It really makes us, makes life what we recognize today as human. And because of my understanding is, and again, this is not a podcast about anthropology, but my understanding is that, that humans and, and like apes are very, very similar. So we can learn a lot about by studying oh, yeah. them. I mean, there's a very, there's like a very minor discrepancy in terms, what is it, the genome? Um, and that's oh, getting into, percent. yeah, yeah. How, what is it? It's a couple percent. You know, like, you know, you're the, 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 the fact, the, the cocktail factoid is you're 98% chimpanzee, which is, means... You know, there's a lot of regulatory genes that can have really big effects. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that you're, you know, but that, that's that's genetically in terms of the A's and T's and C's and G's in your DNA. Yeah, about 98% are the same. And, and see, but I think that's because I think that's a fascinating thing to think about because in our modern world, like my kids are at the age now, and this is one thing I'm seeing. I live in the land of suburbia. I'm in North County, San right. Diego, and I live right near a big popular playground that I used to take my kids to when they were very little, like two, three, four years old. My kids are now a little bit older. They're, they're six and eight years old. And they're at that age where kids are not going to the playground as much anymore. They're starting to do more kind of organized sports. They're starting to do more in normal times, right? We don't have them in full organized sports right now. But we're doing like little mini camps and stuff. But that is, that's one thing I've, I've observed is that we go from being very active when we're young 
to now you're probably going to be at that desk for a while. You're going to be in your lab and you don't get out and play in a playground anymore. And the reason why where I'm going with this question with a statement is talk a little bit about the energy expenditure and human movement, because I think you did a great job of breaking that down. Because one of the things I try to get people thinking about is it's not just exercise, right? Exercise is 40 to 60 minutes a day. And you talked about the, the energy cost of exercise being very minimal. It's all the other stuff we do throughout the day, what, what is called NEAT, the non-exercise activity germ- thermogenesis. But talk a little bit. I thought you did a great breakdown, Doc, of, of going through the different, the different ways that we spend energy between walking, running, and what's the most energy expensive. If we really want to burn per foot or per, you know, per distance the yeah. maximum amount of energy, what, what is, what's, going to be, what's going to be the maximal output? Oh, that's easy. You can either go swimming or go climbing. Yeah, I thought. The, uh, I know, thought that, but I thought the way you broke that down was great. I mean, you did a great job of kind of laying it thanks. out and saying, "Here's what you burn walking. Here's what you burn climbing." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible what you burn climbing because you're you know your body has evolved, as you said. You know, we're really efficient bipeds. You know, and so your body, if you think about that kind of like roller coaster, you know, trajectory your body does as you walk, right? I mean, that's why you've got a top on your coffee cup, right? That's why Starbucks <laughs> sells you a, a lid because when you walk, you're kind of up and down and up and yeah. down and and it's so subtle, you kind of don't notice it. And of course, your, your brain does a great job stabilizing everything, which is why, you know, if somebody walks with a camera, you look at the camera footage later, and it's all jerky. Yeah. Right? But it wasn't jerky for the person, right? Because your body's really good at smoothing that out. But anyway, that's a whole other fun biome- biomechanics tangent. But, you know, your body's really good at moving on the ground because that's kind of what we're evolved to do. Um, now you start climbing or you start swimming. Well, that's just harder. It's just, there's no, no way around that. You're lifting your weight up, either up a flight of steps, or if you like, you know, I, I enjoy rock climbing. It's one of the things I wish I had more time to do. Um, when I was younger, like I said, I used to do it a lot more. Um, but, you know, there's, there's sort of no way around the physics problem of taking this weight and mm-hmm. lifting it up a, a rock wall. That takes energy, and it takes a lot more energy than, than walking, a, you know, a comparable distance. So, um, but all that stuff is, is uh, you it gets swamped. Even even active people are spending more energy on the background stuff that they don't really pay attention to than on that exercise. And I think that's an important point. So it's kind of like, well, first one comment, my what I thought about, and again, this is something I've kind of noticed for years, is that when you're walking and running, you're getting mechanical energy from the ground. You're getting the the, um, the fascia muscles, kind of that pliability or that, that yeah. response mechanism, that loading mechanism. Whereas in swimming, cycling, climbing, you don't get that ground reaction force. You're not getting right. – like swimming, there is no ground reaction force. It's pure 100% muscle generating energy to move through yeah. the water. And that's right. why – I mean I can go down to the beach right now and look at the surfers out there ain't too many fat surfers coming out of the water. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Well, and for that matter, while you're at the beach, go for a run, right? Yeah. And the sand sucks up all that springiness. That's, that's, you don't get yeah. to use it anymore. And it's hard as heck to run in the sand. That, that's exactly why, because you lose all those fascist springs that you get to take advantage of on a hard surface. Well, then let's talk a little bit about, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the digestive process. Because again, for people, for for people that want to really understand the metabolism and do it in a way that applies to how we're living today, I think you do a great job of breaking this down. And yeah, I like the science. Admittedly, I like the science, but sometimes it goes over my head. So, but you do a great, you do, I I like the way you kind of lay it out because it's like, oh, okay. Even though I might've learned it years ago, you, you, you (laughs) kind of, you you do a good job of laying it out. So if you could discuss a little bit about the digest, how does the food we eat turn into carbohydrate? I mean, the food we eat contains carbohydrates, proteins and all that, but how does it turn into the energy at the cellular level? Right. Well, you know, it comes down to the big three. You, You eat a slice of pepperoni pizza, right? And all that mix of stuff that makes it so good. It, you know, it doesn't matter what you have on there, all the topics, no matter what it is, it's really going to get broken down into three groups of, of nutrients, right? It really is that simple. Your proteins get broken down into amino acids. Uh, your, all the carbohydrates and all the sugars eventually get broken down into, into uh, monosaccharides, simple sugars like glucose. Most of them are get broken down into glucose, some into fructose. It's a, it's a, anyway, uh, and all the fats get broken down into fatty acids. Right, so that's really it's, it's the three, we call them the macronutrients, just the big three: carbs, fats, and proteins. Um, and all that gets sucked into your blood, and then your body reassembles them for use. Right, so your pro, the amino acids get put back into proteins, and that becomes the tissues that you, you broke down that day get get built back up 
with the amino acids in your food. Um, fats get either get burned or stored as fat. Um, all the carbs either get burned or stored as either glycogen or fat, you know, and it really is, there are, I'm over, I'm glossing over all the pathways. Um, and so somebody's going to write in and yell, but, uh, but that really is, that really is the deal. Um, the, the one funny trick is you can take sugars and turn them into fat and you can take fats you, and you can take different food, like, uh, proteins, you can burn them down and, and, and burn them for energy. Uh, you can actually turn proteins, for example, into sugars and you can burn, turn fats into sugar. So there's some, there's a little bit of cross pathways there. Um, I, I like to talk about it like it's a subway map, right? You know, you got these three big lines, fats, carbs, and proteins, and, and there are these little middle lines between the two, the three, um, anyhow, but so it all comes down really to the fats and carbs you're bringing in. Are you burning that many calories off or are you not? And that, that's, where the, that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of weight change and all that stuff. And wh what do we get wrong about that? Because, again, I mean, for years we've been taught you know, that this mythology is energy in, energy out. And you, know, you have what the second law of thermodynamics, energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's merely transferred. You know, yeah. what is, so what is some, some of the reality? What do we get wrong about understanding metabolism? Like what is, what, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mean like what can we learn from our yeah. current understanding about metabolism for how we might be able to think differently about how we go about our day? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, the laws of thermodynamics are, are real and I'm not, you know, they're, those are true. And it really does, I think, you know, come down to calories in, calories out. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Because um, like you say, nothing can be destroyed or, or, or produced. It's just, just moved around. But right now, I tell you that, and you say, okay, you take, try to take that advice on board. You think, okay, well, all I got to do is, is keep track of my calories. Well, good luck, right? Good luck. Because first of all, um, it's really hard to know how many calories you burn. People, you know, the, those online calculators you are looking at are wrong. <laughs> well, it's a good guess, but it's not, you know, it's easily off by a couple hundred calories, easily for any, any one of us, right? Um, and that's just normal human variation. And it's also, if you try to keep track of how many calories you eat, like if you even keep a food diary, um, we, eat, we know that people are bad at that too. Right. And they sort of forget that they had a Coke with lunch or they forget about the, you know, bag of chips that they had to tie themselves over, whatever. Who knows why or how? But we know that people are missing, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the calories to eat every day. Doc, if you uh, eat it while standing up, it doesn't count. Exactly. And so, you know, it's just a, it's a total mess. And then add on to that what we started off this conversation talking about, which is that if I'm more active than you, then my body will spend the calories differently. My body responds to those lifestyle changes, not in a simple way, like an engine that I can rev higher or lower. Your body, no, no, no. Your body's playing, playing uh, tricks behind the scenes to, to shuffle things around. And so, you know, you think you're burning more calories because you just started an exercise program, but actually you're not because your body's figured out a way to keep energy the same, even though you're more active, right? So it's really, really, really hard to count calories. And so I think, I think that's why it has led to so much frustration and people just say, oh, calories in, calories out. That's such BS because that doesn't work because I tried it for myself and it doesn't work. And I'm sympathetic because I know how hard it is to track that stuff. I totally get it. Um, but, you know, just because you're bad at balancing your checkbook doesn't mean that, you know, that, <laughs> that your bank account isn't full. Of, you know, it doesn't have come down to how the money comes in and goes out. You know, uh, just because you're a bad accountant doesn't mean that that calories aren't the currency. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I think you know the way that we have to think about it because the calories in, calories out, counting the calorie stuff that's so hard to do. Even if you're you know in a research lab, it's hard to do. Um, I think instead we have to start thinking about uh, the way that that we respond to different kinds of foods. You know, are we eating diets where we just can't get enough and and we start seeing the number on the scale go up, or are we eating diets where we feel full and healthy, and that number is where we need it to be? You know, I think sort of paying attention to it that way. You know, pay attention to the bank account. Don't try to don't try to count receipts and do the calories in, calories out. Pay attention to the to the account number. You know, that's your body weight, and see where that is. And and that's that's the what you really need to focus on. 
Well, this shares, this shares story with you because then I want to ask a question about how you measure calories in the lab because yeah. I use for years, I mean, I have an Apple Watch 6 here, which the company, I, I know a couple of people in the in the Fitness Plus program at Apple and, and I'm test yeah. driving this for them a little bit. But for years ago when I worked at the American Council on Exercise, I spent one summer riding my bike to work. Not every day, but two days a week I'd ride my bike yeah. to work. I lived in downtown San Diego. The office was nine and a half, ten miles away, and I would do one of two routes. You know, yeah. so it was very little variability. The, the only difference between the route was whether I really wanted to punish myself on a climb or I just wanted to be uncomfortable on a climb. That was the only difference between the two routes. Right. But what I was doing, and I had a polar heart rate monitor on, was in the morning. I would come in the morning and I'd write down a little notebook. I'd write down my notebook, my time, and my calories expended. The distance remained relatively the same. There's maybe a half, like I said, a half mile variance between the two. And what I noticed from May to, to mid-September, I started doing that in early May to about mid-September, was I went from burning around 650, maybe 700 calories in, in the spring to burning somewhere around 500, maybe 550 calories by, by the early fall. So mm-hmm. not much had changed between, not much had changed in terms of the distance, but what had changed is my body was more efficient for, I mean, is that, is that accurate? I mean, you're a perfect person yeah. to ask. Because my, my, you know, with my colleagues, we're kind of like, yeah, it makes sense. You were kind of like coming up on a little hypotheses. And again, this is, this is a study of one, so there's no scientific yeah, yeah. validity to it. But it's just me being a geek and keeping track of it. So, and then, then I want to ask you a question about measuring calories. So, to, if, sure. If you could. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical about the, uh, and, and on one very particular level, I'm not skeptical that you saw that change. Absolutely. That makes total sense. But what you might have had and what you're more likely to have had is a change in the in, in stroke volume and cardiac output and the efficiency with which you use that blood, the, the oxygen out of that blood, nutrients out of that blood to fuel yourself. And so your, your muscles are still burning the same number of calories, but your heart's gotten better at delivering it, delivering the nutrients. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's the problem with all of these fitness trackers. Not the problem. I don't want to be mean about it because I think they're great. But th- this is the, the caveat that people have to remember. It's not measuring calories. It's measuring your heart rate, mm-hmm. right? Just like the, you know, the, the trackers on most uh, smart watches, it, uh, some of them do heart rate now, but you know, even the old, quote, uh, old school ones, <laughs> remember yeah, those? Five years uh, ago. <laughs> they, just do, they just do movement. They're not measuring calories. They're measuring movement. Yeah. Right. And they're so, 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 and then, you know, you ask me how I measure calories. Uh, I measure it with oxygen oxygen consumption and CO2 production, right? I measure, I'm measuring those, uh, those molecules going into and out of your mitochondria to actually make ATP, which is the molecule that your body uses to, for energy. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a disconnect there between all this really cool technology that is a great way to keep track of how active we are, which is super important and is maybe the fundamental thing to, be, to worry about. Um, and when we call that calories, Everybody who, you know, everybody in my neck of the woods in, in metabolic physiology are, <laughs> you can, you can see people's shoulders go up because like, well, it's not really calories. Yours um, did. When you watch the video of this, yours did. You had that little, <laughs> you had that reaction. <laughs> but, but I think you're right on the money because I would agree 100% that that was my hypothesis that my stroke volume, my oxygen consumption, hemoglobin yeah. became more efficient over that time by cycling two times a week. My body right. got more efficient. At carrying oxygen to the working muscles, so therefore, and again, when you look at this stuff, I'm pointing to my my fitness tracker. When you yeah. look at this stuff, what they're doing is you're measuring your heart rate, and they're trying to do an estimate based on your your, your the blood volume moving per minute. So, so when you look at it, because I thought you did you you do something that we don't see much anymore, and that I'm a big fan of, and that's using METS because METS measures oxygen consumption. But why is oxygen consumption really the key to understanding caloric expenditure? Oh, that's a, that's that's a great question. So, you know, all of the work that we just talked about your your thirty seven trillion cells doing, okay, all of it, whether it's making estrogen or it's making a neuron in your brain fire or it's moving a muscle, all of it uses the same molecule, which is ATP, uh, adenosine triphosphate, and so that is that is the the fuel of all cell activity, and you can make ATP without oxygen. Uh, and it, when you need it, when you need energy in a, in a quick burst, like a sprint or a power lift or something like that, then you don't need oxygen for that. Um, but the large, huge majority, majority of what we do, uh, you do need oxygen to make that ATP. 
and it's getting the, the ATP gets made in a little part of your cell called the mitochondria, which has its own crazy uh, million-year, billion-year history. It's, it used to be a bacteria that got uh, pulled into a, a cell, two million, it's, it's a crazy story. Anyway, we now have these little organelles in our cells called mitochondria, and they, they take um, the carbon-based fuels from our diets, either glucose or fatty acids, and they chop them up, and as they pull them apart, it's like, uh, you know, you have these big carbon molecules, and when you pull them apart, it's like they release all this energy from getting ripped apart. Uh, you can think about it like, you know, pulling like those, I'm picturing those, those like firecrackers that you pull the string and they go puff, right? It's kind of <laughs> yeah. like that. You pull the, the carbon molecule off and it goes bang. Um, and all that energy gets stored up and, and eventually gets converted into this stuff called ATP. And to make that conversion happen, you need oxygen. Um, and in fact, you take the oxygen in, and, and you put a couple of protons on it and you turn it into water, which is kind of crazy to think about, right? So we're actually producing water. Your, your cells make water over the course of a day, which is kind of fun to think about. Um, oh, and by the way, while you're doing that, you're also, that those carbons that you pulled off, they become carbon dioxide. And so that's why we can measure both of these things, carbon dioxide production or the oxygen that you, you take in and, and never leaves again, as really that's where the, that is the nuts and bolts. That is the machinery that makes the fuel that everything runs on. And so if you're you know, a physiologist like I am, I get anthropologist, physiologist, I don't know what the best what I, I am. It depends on the conversation, I guess. But you know, if you're trained like I'm trained or what we do in my lab, uh, it's oxygen and CO2 and everything else is guessing. Um, it, you know, everything else is an estimate. If it's movement-based or if it's heart rate-based, uh, it's great, but it's, it's not really the same as if you go in and are measuring what's happening inside the cell like we can do when we measure oxygen and CO2. And see, I think that you did a great job of breaking that down. And for listeners, you know, what we did when I worked at the American Council on Exercise a number of years ago, we actually kind of really ruffled, you know, kind of created, you know, created ripples in our industry and personal trainers. Because for years, we told people that the magic formula was 220 minus age, right? If you want to find training, if you want to try and find exercise intensity, do 220 minus age. But my colleague, who's a professor at San Diego State, who's been on the podcast a number of times, yeah. Fabio Kamana, um, he, was, he was like, you know, no, we're getting ready to write the fourth edition of our personal trainer manual. And he said, no, let's take that out of there and let's put the talk test in. And the talk test, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Bakari and Foster's work, but the talk test for listeners is when you're, when you're working at a harder rate, just as Dr. Ponser described, when you're working at a harder rate, your body's going to start shuttling towards using uh, carbohydrate for fuel because it can make it energy quicker. And the byproduct of that is carbon dioxide. And that and expiring, if, I want to make sure I'm getting the science correctly, but expiring carbon dioxide limits the ability to talk. So therefore, it is a good way, and where I'm going with that is now what we try to teach trainers to think about is when you're working with a client, pay attention to their breathing rate and their ability to talk as an estimate of their, of their work intensity. Would that be a more efficient way? If people are interested in burning calories, if people want to go out and quote unquote be in the fat burning zone or want to train efficiently, yeah. would that be an efficient way? How is that a more efficient way to think about exercise as opposed to just heart rate? Yeah, well, uh, that's interesting. I mean, there's the, uh, I'm familiar with the Borg scale and with the uh, you know re perceived exertion and and the talk test that I've heard of. I haven't really implemented it much in my lab. We don't do tons of that sort of exercise testing in my lab all, uh, these days. Um, but you know, if you so what you're talking about is, uh, if I'm understanding the question is, you know, how do we get to that zone where the body's able to burn lots of fat in the mix? Because your body's you're always burning a mix of fat and carbs, right? Unless you push it too hard, you push it too hard and it's all carbs, yeah. right? And that's going to be your glycogen stores. That's not what you want. You want to burn the fat stores, right? Most of us, if you're trying to, to so, uh, so that's a really good point. If you're, if you're pushing yourself so hard that you can't talk while you're doing it, then that's a good indicator that the mix of fuels is, is really carb heavy. Um, and I don't know, it would be interesting to sort of figure out how this has to do with, you know, either, uh, turning energy away from the ability to talk so much as when your breathing rate goes up really high, because we talk through our, our vocal tract, right? So you have to, you have to sort of tense it and control it to be able to make a sound. Mm. And if you're, you know, you can hardly keep up anyhow, then, then, then that's tensing for a moment to, to be able to talk. It's really hard to do. So it'd be fun to kind of piece out exactly why that talk test is so effective, but I have no doubt it is that that makes good sense to me. 
Yeah, and I just, but I just want people to, to think about that because the reason why I brought that up is I think a lot of people still get so beholden, and I'm pointing to my, to my fitness yeah. tracker now. I think people get so beholden to their heart rate, whereas if we just pay attention to our breathing rate and, and be able – because when we can breathe and talk – we can burn more. My understanding is we burn, metabolize more fats as fuel. Whereas, just as you mentioned, you're you're kind of you're getting out of breath. You're more carbohydrate. Now to shift gears real quick, one of the, one of the things I wrote down um, that I want to ask you about because I need to understand this better. I hear it all the time: ketogenic diet, keto this, mm. keto that. And you 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 have a you, you mentioned you have a specific call out on ketones. Sure. What if you could talk for a moment about what ketones are and what it, what what do people mean by like a ketogenic diet? And let's let's take it back to the Hadza to your work. Are the hunter gatherer tribes <laughs> are they following a ketogenic diet or not? I mean, so if you could yeah. talk just a little bit about what those are. Sure, sure, sure. So a ketogenic diet is means that one in which your body is produces ketones. So how does it do that? Well, in the mitochondria, uh, particularly as you're taking in fats. Right, so so it gets down to this combination of, of carbs and fats that you're burning. If you don't have any carbs in your diet, no sugars, no carbohydrates, then your body is forced to burn fats for fuel. That's fine. Your body can do that. It's, your body's pretty good at that. Um, and so when you're, but those molecules are much bigger, and it's not the same as a small glucose molecule. Instead, you're bringing you're bringing these big long chain fatty acids to burn down. And when you do that, that process, uh, just the enzymatic chopping up of that molecule in your, you know, to, to get it burned in your mitochondria, doesn't just produce the, the usual products that your mitochondria use for ATP. It also produces these molecules called ketones. Okay, and so those ketones can also go off and be used as fuel as well. They can also go into a mitochondria and get and get turned into ATP. Uh, and so. A ketogenic diet is one in which we see that ketone molecule. Ketones are a kind of molecule. We see those floating around in your blood. And sometimes we can even measure them in your urine, right? Because you make so much of them, they clear out of your urine, and we can measure them in your in urine. Uh, and so people are really hot on these as a, as a way to lose weight, or the, some people say that you should live your life in a ketogenic state. Um, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical for a couple of reasons. One is that, that you know, as far as we can tell, most animals are able to go into ketogenesis. There's this interesting thing about carnivores maybe are bad at it, but I know that, for example, orangutans can go into ketogenesis. There's nothing human uh, unique to our evolution uh, that allows us to go into ketogenesis. Uh, and it's, it's a response that you have to not having any carbs in your diet, which is usually a, a starvation response. Because if you eat a mix of things and all of a sudden you take half that mix away, well, guess what? That's your, your energy income's low and you're, you're starving. Um, so ketogenesis is a normal starvation response. You can go into ketogenesis if you only eat fats and then you're not starving because you're getting all the calories you need, but you're in this really weird, really kind of unique sort of space where you're eating such a fat heavy zero carb diet that the only pathway your body has to make energy is by burning fats. And that's when you kick out the ketones. Um, some people swear by it and it makes sense in a way that if you are, if you go that route, uh, you know, you might feel more full because fat, fatty meals can feel full. If you have a ketogenic diet, it's usually a meat heavy diet. A lot of protein proteins make you feel full. Okay. So there's, I, I can understand, everybody can understand why they would work to help you lose weight, maybe to, to make you feel full on fewer calories. The idea that there's some natural evolved human diet, I'm really skeptical about. Uh, and that's because so to answer your second question, if you look at a group like the Hadza, you look broadly around other hunting and gathering groups that we have data on, there's no evidence that they're ketogenic ever. Uh, the Hadza eat plenty of carbs. They get about 50% of their diet uh, from honey, which is just sugar and water. Um, you know, there, there might be some low, low levels of ketogenesis in like Arctic groups, um, but actually Arctic living is, is a really recent phenomenon. Like it's as recent as farming. Um, most of us, most of our history has been in the tropics and the temperate mm -hmm. regions where, you know, plant foods would have been uh, available. So anyway, that, this gets to a, a sort of soapbox thing. And I've probably already gone on too long of this answer. Ranting. But, but one of the things that popped into mind is kind of like the periodization of nutrition, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of what, what's the old joke is, 
a vegan, a CrossFitter, and an atheist walk into the bar, and how do you, how do you know because they tell you? You know, right. it, it, so when, I, I just have very personally I have very little patience for yeah. anybody who espouses any type of lifestyle of anything, especially when it comes to diets. Because I'm sure in your studies is one of your observations, and we'll, we'll begin to wrap it up here. But is yeah. one of your observations that you know nomadic a nomadic population is going to have different diets throughout the year. Certain times of the year, there's going to be more meat availability. Other times of the year, they're going to have to rely more on tubers and more on other things Absolutely. they find. So isn't it – doesn't our physiology, doesn't our biology – how does our biology naturally support kind of a shifting diet? No, that's exactly right. You know, over over the course of a year, um, if we go from one group to another – I mean, look around the world today at all the diversity of diets that people – different cultures have. You think it's ever been any different than that, right? I mean, cultural diversity, dietary diversity has been the norm. Uh, across time, across space. And so the idea that somebody says, no, 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 you have to eat or you should eat or we're evolving the one pure thing, that's a red flag for anybody out there. You know, I, and, and I want to also say, hey, if you found a diet that works for you, great. I'm not, I, the, my book is not a diet book. I'm not trying to sell anybody on anything. But what I would like to inject into the conversation is maybe a little sanity uh, which is that, look, humans can do great on a range of diets for the re reason you said, right? We, we have to be adaptable. We are, and we are adaptable. So um, yeah, exactly, just exactly to your point where we can eat a lot of range of uh, different diets and, and be healthy. And then the final question, doctor, because this is a, I, I've been reading through, I don't know if you know David Sinclair. I think he was at, at Harvard. Oh, sure. Yeah, the same, but, but I'm reading through his book now about aging and that that's a big thread of, of the um, of the podcast and the work that I do is the caloric restriction. I mean, because when you look at when you look at, at at how we can slow down the aging process, one of the big ways is obviously exercise. But when it comes to me metabolism, you know they're looking at caloric restriction, intermittent fasting. So, does your work have you done any work on that? Did you do any observation on how caloric restriction kind of affects our metabolism and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, yeah. It's not a huge focus of our work, we, you know, because when we look out uh, across populations like the Hadza, they're not trying to restrict their calories necessarily, right? Um, but uh, so, but uh, but I know that work. I find it super interesting. A lot of my colleagues work on that. So what I can tell you is, uh, it does seem to have. There's this long-term calorie restriction study called the Calorie Study uh, that does seem to show the kinds of benefits that you that we see in other species when we restrict their calories. People, you know, eat fewer calories and oxidative stress level seem to go down and other markers of health seem to improve. So, you know, I think, I think there's something there. Um, I think what's interesting to me is the way that calorie restriction seems to make your body reallocate and kind of prioritize the way it spends its calories more judiciously. We seem to see uh, a reflection of that in the way that your body responds to exercise too, that you spend more energy on exercise and your body goes, okay, well, we have fewer calories now to do these other things. So let's do them more judiciously. Uh, and so both of those, I think, are, are going to be this key to, to healthy aging. Absolutely. And I'll just say that, you know, the Hadza are a great example of healthy aging. You got men and women in their 60s, 70s, even 80 years old out there trekking along to go get foods every day. I mean, they're, if, if um, the, the mix of, of sort of whole food diets and lots of exercise uh, seems to work for them. So I think it will work for us. Uh, Doc, I'm, I'm just getting this. I'm getting this image in my mind. If, if you hear a news story in the coming next day or two about somebody going into a Whole Foods here in Del Mar, California, wearing only a <laughs> loincloth and start digging around in a pile of sweet potatoes with a sharp stick, <laughs> I might yeah. be guilty of that because you refer to Whole Foods and you refer to this, and I'm kind of getting right. this image of somebody going into Whole Foods <laughs> as a hunter gatherer. <laughs> I, got, I walk, if I walk into Whole Foods with a spear in my hand and, and one of those what do they, they call those claws they gather things in. That's and right. That's <laughs> So that's such a good point, though. I mean, I it, obviously it's it, that's hilarious, but um, so much of the paleo stuff, the paleo diet stuff, is like it becomes this cosplay, right? Like I'm going to have to dress up, and I got I can't wash my hair, and I can't wear my I can't wear shoes, and you know, it's like guys, we're taking the wrong lessons here, right? <laughs> the, the lesson is let's take the good principles here about exercise, and let's bring those into our into our lives, not like 
pretend to be hunter gatherers. Like that's just so silly. But anyway, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll exactly. look out for the news though. You, you kind of you kind of said that. But then the final question, and the, and the final question I wanted to wrap up with this is: you've studied you studied some people in Georgia. I didn't really go deep into that thread in your book. Oh yeah. But you studied you studied populations in Georgia. You've studied populations in Africa. Where's been your favorite place to travel? Where Where's been the place that you are like uh, that you just really that that because I see that picture over your shoulder and that looks like one of the, the yeah. tribesmen of the Hadza. But where's like yeah. the place that you really just kind of blew your mind uh, just from spending time there? Uh, the best part about my job is how many different places I get to go and all the different folks I get to see. And it's all really fun. So that's almost impossible to answer. But if I had to pick, it's the Hadza. You know, to be in um, a hunter-gatherer camp and to see that way of life still going and, and see people still, you know, doing it is just so, it's just so different. And at the same time, you know, what you notice after a while is, is how similar it all is. You know, kids are still kids, you know, friends are still friends sitting around a fire talking like daily life has the same rhythm and the same kind of vibe and sort of this juxtaposition of, wow, that culturally is very different, but, all, but day-to-day life is still, you know, they're still very much the same. Um, I love that, that connection and the way you kind of come back to your own, what, what's, the, what's the, the line, the purpose of travel is to go abroad and come back and see your own life in a different way. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but I think I get the most of that kind of effect when I, I get to travel in Africa and especially with the Hads, it's a lot of fun. So um, yeah, if I had to pick one, I guess I got to pick that one. All right. Well, Dr. Dr. Herman Ponser, the author of Burn, how can people get more information about your book? I mean, obviously I'm sure they can pick it up anywhere books are available, but where if people are interested in, in your work and, and want to find out more about what you're doing, and, and doing with your lab at Duke, how can people follow along or, or find you know, sure. up to date? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the book's available everywhere. Books are sold. So uh, go out and check it out. Um, if you want to hear more about what, what I'm doing here at, at Duke, um, you can Google, you know, check us out of the Ponser lab here at Duke. It's, we're online and easy to find. Um, and if you want to find out more about the Hadza, uh, and especially if you want to maybe help them out, uh, you know, you can go to Hadza Fund, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D, org, And you can find out about our work. You can find out more about Hadza culture. Um, you can find about uh, some of the ways that, that researchers like myself are giving back to try to, you know, help them out um, as best we can. And all of those would be great resources for people who get excited about the book. That's awesome. Well, doctor, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. That was a fascinating discussion. And again, thank you for listening. I, I really mean it. And one of the things I love about doing this podcast, I absolutely just truly cherish about doing this podcast is having these type of discussions. It is being able to talk with, with top experts in their fields, with authors about their work. Because honestly, I'm a geek. If, if I were, as I was listening to Dr. Ponser talk, I was sitting there thinking about it. I, would have, I could imagine being a student in his class, sitting in the front row. He'd probably get tired of me raising my hand, go, well, doctor, what about this? Doctor, what about that? But that's the way I treat each, that's the way I approach each one of my guests. I respect their time. I respect your time. And so when I interview a guest, I try to be as prepared as possible. The one challenge I had, and I don't want to say it's a challenge, but I had a PDF copy of Dr. Ponser's book. And, and I'm a very kinesthetic reader, a very kinesthetic learner. And what I mean by that is when I read a book, I always have a pen in my hand. If I'm reading a book for work, if I'm reading a book on physiology, metabolism, if I'm reading a book for science, I have a pen in my hand because I take notes. I take copious notes in the margins of books. A, a, a college buddy of mine, Gene Hayes, Gene, if you're listening, big shout out. College buddy of mine, Gene Hayes, used to love uh, taking classes a semester after me because he'd always ask about my books. He, he'd say, Petey, all I need to do, uh, that was my nickname in college was Petey. He said, Petey, all I need to do is if Lloyd calls on me, that was our professor, all I need to do is look down and see what you wrote in the margin. That's usually the right answer. <laughs> and so that that's, but that's what I do when I read, when I read research, when I read, when I read books. I, I like to take notes. Having a PDF copy of Dr. Ponser's book allowed me, I could go through it, but I didn't go through it the same way and take notes, which helps me digest the material. But what I wanted to bring to you, the reason why I wanted to have this discussion was, like I said in the beginning, paleo is, is one of the biggest trends we have in fitness right now. But you know, we live in a first world society. We live in a society where we have thousands of calories available at any moment. And I wanted you to hear, 
as soon as I started reading that book, I knew he was the right guy to have on the podcast because I wanted you to hear what his research on the Hadza tribe showed and what it, what it taught us or what it can teach us about the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Now, I, I really had that image as we're talking. I had the image of walking into a Whole Foods, wearing a loincloth, carrying a spear and a sharp stick and, and start foraging for food in the Whole Foods because he would talk about Whole Foods. And, and obviously, we don't do that. In the first world, in the 21st century, 2021, we don't do that. Um, but I just that was the image I had. And if you are somebody... If you are somebody who hunts, if you are somebody that has your own garden, if you are somebody that, that does that, that takes pride in growing your own food and harvesting your own food, you understand how energy expensive that can be. That was This was a fun conversation. Hey, if you want to learn more, if you want to understand more about exercise, if you want to understand how exercise can enhance your quality of life as well as help slow down the aging process, go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. At PeteMcCallFitness.com, you can sign up for my mailing list. I don't spam your e-box. I don't spam your email box. I send out one, maybe two emails a month. I try to put tips in there. I try to put some of the latest. If you're already listening to interviews, I try to put some of the latest interviews or something you might have missed from a guest a while back. But I want to stay connected with you. If you have any ideas for guests, you have any feedback on shows, reach out to me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. I want All About Fitness to be a community of how we're all working together. I'm a big believer in the saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. What I'm trying to do by doing, what I'm trying to do with the podcast, what I'm trying to do with my books, Smarter Workouts, and my upcoming book, Ageless Intensity, what I'm trying to do with my eBooks, which are available down below, is I'm trying to give you the information about how you can use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Go to the All About Fitness Podcast channel on YouTube. Follow All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. Let's connect. Let's stay connected. Let's support each other in our journeys. And as always, thank you for stopping by. And I certainly look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.